Welcome to Walk Through the Bible, Susan Michaels' 12-month journey through the most exciting book on the planet. It will transform your life one page at a time. Be sure to subscribe for future episodes that will ignite your faith and bring your Bible to life. Now, let's join our host, Susan Michael. Well, hey there, and welcome back. This is week three of Walk Through the Bible. And today we're going to be talking about the stories found on pages 68 to 96 of the Daily Bible or the dates January 15th through 21 in the Daily Bible. Uh, We're dealing with the end of the patriarchal period in the story of Jacob and uh, the story of one of his sons, particularly in Joseph. So uh, the last two weeks we have uh, begun our story of the, uh, the beginning of mankind and the fall of mankind and then the call of God on Abraham uh, that through him he's going to birth a nation and through that nation he's going to redeem the world. And so we have this story of the beginning of this sojourn of, of Abram and then uh, the story continuing on with Isaac. And we began the story of Jacob. Uh, We covered most of the story of Jacob. We ended last week with Jacob is now back in the land. He uh, ends up with 12 sons and a daughter, and he has a big clan. He's living at peace with his brother Esau, and uh, things are going very well. But we see that God has established the, the lineage promised to Abraham. Uh, And it's gone from Abraham to Isaac to now Jacob. And uh, so this week we're going to continue the story. And I want to highlight, first of all, some uh, of the cultural context of two of the stories that we read uh, this week. And then we're going to talk about uh, the story of Joseph. And we're going to talk both about the spiritual story behind the story of Joseph. And we're going to talk about some of the archaeological uh, evidence regarding the story of Joseph. So let's get started. Um, The first story we read first off this week, it's kind of an odd story. And you probably haven't heard many sermons on the story of uh, Dina and the men of Shechem. Uh, Of course, Dina is raped, and she is forcibly taken into the home of the man that raped her, and he is wanting to marry her. And so the men of Shechem, who are not Israelite, they're pagans, and they approach the uh, men of the family of Jacob, and uh, they want to set a price for her that they'll pay so that she will stay. Um, now, uh, one thing I want to point out is that it does seem that in the ancient world, there was some sort of a uh, precedent here that this was to happen, that if a girl uh, was raped um, and the man is using it as a means of like forcing marriage, that um that they can pay for it uh, to keep the marriage in place. Um, So we have this kind of story here in the Bible. So it's not out of keeping um, 
with the world at the time. But I do want to point out here the very Middle Eastern flavor to this story and that, you know, we live in the 21st century. We're in the Western world, um, very individualistic world, and it's all about, let's say, in the, in the case of rape, it's about the two individuals. It's about the person that forced themselves on the other person. And, uh, but in this story, we see that it's very much about the group. And um, we have to understand this is the way they approach everything. So the, the insult and the attack against Dina is not just against this woman. It's against her group. It's against her family. And the family takes it personally. And so when the men of Shechem come to them and say, what's the price? We'll pay you. Um, they, of course, deceive the men of Shechem because they've decided the price is you're all going to pay for it and you're going to pay with your lives. That was the price. And uh, so we have this story where they very cleverly, uh, and this may be an idea that came from Jacob, uh, another clever way of manipulating the situation is to force all the men to be circumcised so that they can marry their daughters. And uh, of course, while they are in pain and recovering from adult circumcision, they attack and kill them all. Um, there's a second story we read this week that has a very cultural flavor to it, so different from our culture uh, today. And this is the story of Judah and uh, Tamar. So in um, the time, there was something called a leverate marriage. And in this marriage, if a man died, his brother was to, be, uh, was to marry the widow and take responsibility for her so that she could then carry on the family line of the man that had passed away. And uh, this was very, very common. And so in this story, we have where Judah actually did this um, for the death of his the first son and the second son. But when it came to Tamar, he didn't fulfill um, the obligation here and did not arrange for her a marriage and did not take care of her so that the family line would be uh, carried on. And in the story, then she tricks him in a very clever way and deceives him so that then she becomes pregnant by him, which then carries on the line. Now, we read this story in our culture and in our time, and we're like, you know, appalled by this. This is like, oh, really? But we have to understand that in the day, this was accepted because carrying on the family line was everything. And, um, and so in our daily Bible, I just love that at the end of the story, uh, the editor put a little note in there so that you would understand the significance of this story. And the significance is that later on, it's actually from the line of Perez, her son, that the Messiah comes from. So God obviously condoned this. And the line of the Messiah is found here. So very interesting. We have to realize 
that the Bible reflects a time and a culture that's just different from ours. Now, then we have the story that uh, Rachel dies and is buried in the cave where we've already buried Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah. And I'm sorry, Rachel is not buried in the cave. Forgive me. She is buried near the cave, uh, near Bethlehem, not at Hebron. And um, and today there is an area there known as Rachel's tomb. Um, I don't know that we know for sure that it is, but uh, it's in near Bethlehem. Um, and then we have the story of the Edomites and the long uh, family line. The Edomites become a very large people group. Uh, but I want to point out that they become known for hostility towards the children of Israel. And so if we back up last week, I talked about the story of Ishmael. And so many of our, our sermons have oversimplified that story and blamed Ishmael for all the troubles in the Middle East and for all the war and the animosity. But actually, in the Bible, it is the Edomites that carry on hostility towards the children of Israel. And there's many prophecies about Mount Seir, which is where the Edomites were headquartered, and um, and their hostility and, and their uh, evil nature. And this came from Esau. So uh, there are far more scriptures about the descendants of Esau than there ever were about the descendants of Ishmael. Almost nothing in the Bible about the descendants of Ishmael. So now, having covered uh, that, we then enter the story of Joseph. Um, we all know the story, so I'm not going to tell it, but I am going to review it very, very quickly, that uh, Joseph and Benjamin were the favorites of Jacob because their mother was Rachel. Joseph has, has two dreams, and he these two dreams show his brothers and then even his father bowing down to him. He totally offends the whole family. The brothers are already fed up with ben, with uh, Joseph that he's the favorite, uh, one of the favorites, and um, and here he is with these preposterous dreams and claims and big headedness. And so they come up with the scheme: we just want to get rid of him. Uh, he is sold to the Ishmaelites or the Midianites. That's maybe a mixture uh, on their trade caravan to Egypt. They take Joseph to Egypt. They sell him off to Potiphar, who is a uh, an official uh, for Pharaoh, and he buys Joseph. Joseph uh, is living in the home of Potiphar, serving him as a slave. And we all know the story. Potiphar's wife begins to uh, be enticed by Joseph. He's obviously very good looking and very well built. He flees. He doesn't give in to the temptation. She falsely accuses him, so he's put in prison. While in prison, he interprets dreams. So later on, when Pharaoh has his own two dreams, Word gets out, well, there's this Hebrew in prison. He can interpret them. He's called out. He interprets the dreams that there are seven years of plenty coming to Egypt that will be followed by seven years of famine. And he said, Pharaoh, what you need to do is get prepared and use the good work, the good years 
to set aside enough grain so that you can make it through the bad years. And Pharaoh likes this so much, this idea that he actually puts Joseph over all of the kingdom and he is in charge of carrying out this plan. Now, we read the story and it's like, this is really preposterous. This is obviously just a biblical tale of myth and, and wishful thinking here. Um, but actually, you know, Egyptology is a huge field. There has been a lot of archaeological finds in Egypt. There's been years and years and years of study of the history of Egypt. There's been a fascination with the history of Egypt. And there are stories um, coming from the uh, Egyptian tombs and the papyrus and all telling stories of others similar to this where someone who was actually of a lowly birth was elevated to a very high position. So it is within keeping of the time. It's not out of question here. This really may have happened. And so we know the story. Joseph um, is saves Egypt and his family then has to come from Canaan. And uh, we have this beautiful story of his brothers who do not recognize him. And uh, he plays with them and he tests them out. Uh, he wants to see, have they changed? And actually he saw, yeah, they changed. They regret what they did to me. And they're refusing to do the same thing to my younger brother, Benjamin. And so they've changed. And that's when he breaks down and he weeps. He reveals his identity to them. They bring his father, Jacob, to Egypt. Pharaoh says, give them the best of the land. So they uh, are allowed to live in Goshen. Jacob actually ends his days in Egypt, but he makes them promise to take his bones back to the land, and they do, and they take his body and they bury him in the cave where Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah and uh, Jacob's wife Leah have all been buried, and Jacob is now laid to rest there along with Leah in the cave that Abraham purchased. Um, later, Joseph dies in Egypt, and they also promise to take his bones back, which they do during the Exodus. Now, that's a short, short, short rundown of the story. I'm going to take a minute to talk about the spiritual principle behind this story, the uh, spiritual story behind the story of Joseph, because there is an amazing parallel here between Joseph and Jesus. And just like Joseph had strife with his brothers uh, over his claims, Jesus had strife with his brothers, even the leader of his, of his brothers. I mean, I don't mean his family brothers, but his brothers, the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders at the time. He had strife with them over his claims of who he was. And um, so just as Joseph's brothers sold him off to Potiphar, uh, sold him to the Ishmaelites, actually, I should say, and got rid of him. They didn't know he was going to end up uh, in Egypt with Potiphar. But uh, so Jesus's Jewish brethren 
the leaders of the Sanhedrin turned him over to the Romans for crucifixion, and he was crucified. Now, of course, Jesus is resurrected, and he's ascended, and he sends the Holy Spirit, and the church is birthed, and there's been a whole movement for 2,000 years of people around the world that understand who Jesus was and worship him as the Son of God. Um, just as the Egyptians stripped Joseph of his Jewishness, I mean, he still had the same skin, he still had the same eyes, he was still Joseph, but all of a sudden he's dressing like them, he's doing his hair like them, he's speaking their language, he's acting like them, he's acting like an official, second only to Pharaoh. Um, he's living like them, so much so that his own brothers didn't even recognize him. And we have the same thing with the Gentile church. Starting in the second century, as soon as the church leadership was no longer Jewish and it was Gentile, these Gentiles brought with them a hatred for the Jewish people, and they brought it into the church, and they nourished it through the theology of the church, and they birthed a theology that took all the Jewishness away from Christianity and away from Jesus, so that if you were to be a Christian, you could not practice Sabbath. You could not observe Passover. You were to have nothing to do with the Jewish elements of the Old Testament. You were to see that as bad. And so the church took off with a whole new calendar, a whole new um, identity. It was totally Gentile. In fact, it, it incorporated dates and things from the pagan world. And Jesus was depicted as white-skinned and blonde-haired and blue-eyed. And for hundreds of years, Christians in the church at the time, I'm talking the historic church, what, what we might call the Catholic church, didn't even know that Jesus was Jewish because it had all been stripped away from him. So the Jewish people then become persecuted by this church. And so they believe that this Jesus that the church worships brings hatred and bigotry. So they don't even recognize him as a Jewish Messiah. Of course not. He brings hatred and bigotry. He brings problems onto our people. We'll have nothing to do with him. So if you do not know the history of the church that I'm telling you there, um, you may not understand what I'm talking about, and I don't have time to go into it, but one day in the future, in a few months, I'm going to do some teaching about the history of the church and the Jewish people, and I'm going to talk about how this anti-Jewish theology took place, took hold in the church, and how we got so far from our Jewish roots, and we took Jesus with us so that Today, Jewish people are having to relearn from those of us that say, no, 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 Jesus was Jewish, and he loved the Jewish people, and we love the Jewish people. You are the root that supports us in the church. The Apostle Paul said, 
We were to honor you. We we're not to be arrogant and haughty the way the church was. And so we are abiding by the Apostle Paul in Romans 9 through 11. And this is like a whole new learning process for the church and for the Jewish people. And I believe that one day the story of Joseph is going to be finished in the life of Jesus. And that's going to be one day Jesus is going to tell everybody to leave the room and it's just going to be him with his Jewish brethren and he's going to reveal himself to them as a nation. And I believe we read about that day in the prophet Zechariah chapter 12. Now, um, I just threw a lot at you, but the parallels are amazing. And uh, Zechariah 12 through 14 describes a series of events that are equally amazing. And so I want you to know when you're reading the story of Joseph that it is a type and shadow. It is a foreshadowing of the story of Jesus in a really magnificent way. Now, I also want to talk about the timing and the archaeological evidence of the story of Joseph. Um, did the Israelites end up in Egypt, in the land of Goshen? Did this Joseph end up high up in Pharaoh's court? I mean, is there any evidence? You've already said that the study of the history of Egypt has been going on for many, many years. Uh, Egyptology, it's uh, lots of archaeological finds, lots of history. And uh, so do we have evidence? I want to uh, introduce to you two concepts, which are problems here with the archaeology of the, of the time. First is, when it comes to archaeology, there is a very key element that goes beyond the actual artifact that's been found. So let's say they uncover something and this something um, is very, very important. It tells a story or it, it um, verifies something that's in the Bible. But that's only half of the study of archaeology. There is an equally important aspect to the find, and that is, well, what time period does this finding come from? And that's where we get into so many problems when it comes to the archaeology in Egypt proving the story of the Israelites. There is a ton of proof, and um, it's just, it's mind-blowing. But all the archaeologists will tell you that there's no proof because they believe that the story of Joseph and the Israelites in Egypt is from a certain time period. And they're going to tell you there's no proof that any of that happened in that time period. There is a fascinating, absolutely fascinating documentary that has just been released. And I'm going to give you a link to it in the show notes. I'll give you the name at the end of today's segment. It tells how that if you can just adjust the dates by 250 years, the archaeology is amazing. And it's not just the Bible 
that doesn't coincide with the Egyptology dates. It's actually many other cultural histories, the Greeks and the others, there's like 10 other histories that none of them can line up with the Egyptology. And if e the Egyptologists would just realize that they're off by a couple hundred years in those ancient years uh, in the uh, oldest kingdom, move it forward, then it coincides not only with the Bible, but with Greek history and other histories. And so this, um, this documentary is absolutely fascinating. But what are some of the finds? There is, um, before I go there, let me just say, there is another problem, and it's not archaeology. It's that in the scriptures, um, it seems to imply that the Israelites are slaves in Egypt under Ramses. And we know that Ramses II became like the greatest Pharaoh in terms of building. He's known as the builder Pharaoh. So it makes perfect sense that they were slaves under him in all of his building expeditions. And it even says that they helped build two storage cities of Ramses. Um, when you're reading these scriptures, though, this uh, documentary will explain that it could be that there was uh, that those references are anachronistic, as we call anachronology, so that they are calling what's Ramses because when they're writing this, everybody knows that area, but that during the actual events, it wasn't known as the city of Ramses. And um, underneath the city of Ramses is another city named Avarice. And Avarice was almost entirely non-Egyptian. They were from what's called North Syria. So they were from Canaan, from Syria, from, from that area that, that uh, Abraham came from. They had livestock. They were very populous. They grew quickly. They started out with about 70 people, and they grew, and then they had other communities, and it became uh, one of the largest, if not the largest city in the Levant region of the time. That's how populous they became. And then according to the archaeology, all of a sudden, the people became mistreated and malnourished, and they began to die off earlier. And then we have a whole rash of graves of male children. And we have the story, of course, where Pharaoh killed all the male children. They have all of this in the archaeology. If only we can coincide the dating system. It's all there. And then the most exciting thing, which I want to close today with, the most exciting find is that here in the city of Avarice was a palace. And this palace was obviously of the leading official in the area. The palace had 12 pillars in it, like a portico with 12 columns, a big, talking about a big area with 12 columns. And on the grounds of the palace, they found 12 graves, and one of the graves 
had a pyramid over it. Not a huge pyramid like the Pharaoh's, but it had a pyramid over the grave. Now, what does this mean? This means that one of the people, one of the 12 people buried on the ground was very honored, so much so that they built a pyramid over his grave and inside the pyramid was a big statue and the larger the statue, the more honor to the person that's buried there. And this statue, though, was not of an Egyptian. It didn't have the right skin color or the right hair. He had light-colored skin, reddish hair, which is the way they portrayed people from North Syria. And there are remains of multicolored on his garment. Could this be Joseph with the multicolored coat? Joseph, who's not Egyptian, he's from the area of, of Abraham. Joseph, who was honored by Pharaoh with a pyramid, could it be? I think this is one of the most exciting things I have ever heard. But the archaeologists are going to tell you the dates don't work. So uh, we link in the show notes to this documentary has just been released. It is called Patterns of Evidence, The Exodus. I think it's an hour and a half or two hours long. It's fascinating. So we link to it in our show notes. I recommend that you get it. It's so exciting. Let me wrap up today what we've heard so far. Today, we heard the story of how God not only was establishing the family line through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then Joseph, but he saved the family line from famine, both in Abraham's time and now today in Jacob's time, so much so that Jacob had to leave the land of Canaan to go to Egypt where there was food and there was safety. But God told him, he had his blessing to go to Egypt, and he said, I will bring your people back to the land. So he goes in peace. One day he does die, and they take him back and bury him in the land. But this is the story of God not only establishing the family line, but preserving it and making sure that it survived. And he used the Egyptians to make sure the family line survived. It's also the story of the hardships in the land, and I want you to get this. God promised this land to the descendants of Abraham, and yet Abraham didn't own any of it except at the end, towards the end of his life, he buys the field with the cave in it for burial. But he didn't own the land, but he stepped into the promises of God, and he purchased this piece of property in faith that his people were going to fill the land one day. And then here's Jacob, who in faith has to leave the land because it's such a hard land. It's a land that depends on rain. And if there's not enough rain, then there's not enough food. Egypt depends on the Nile River and all the tributaries from the Nile River. Of course, they need rain and they need to keep the river up. So even Egypt went through seven years, but they still had the Nile and they had enough wherewithal that they were able to uh, 
plan, and thanks to Joseph and the dreams and God himself, they planned ahead. And so God used Joseph to preserve the food in Egypt for his people, the children of Jacob, and that this family line would survive. And one day they are going to be planted in their land, but it's a hard land. And I just want to take a minute to say, do you ever feel like life isn't everything that you think it's supposed to be? Have faith. Lean into him. Let him provide for you. If you need help, go for help. God God doesn't mind you going for help, but he has ways around. He has provision for you. He has help for you. The point is to look to him for his provision and all his promises will be yea and amen for you, just as they were for Abraham, Isaac, Joseph, and Jacob. Now, as we close, I have one exciting announcement to make that this week I'm going to be launching a new series called Going Deeper. It's going to be a sister series to our walk through the Bible and give me the opportunity to interview some experts and book authors and filmmakers and just go a little bit deeper on some of the things that we've talked about that week. So this week, our first episode is going to launch and I'm going to be interviewing the award-winning film producer, Tim Mahoney. He's the producer of the Patterns of Evidence on the Exodus that we link to in our show notes, the documentary film series, which is just so exciting that we're going to get a few minutes of interview with Tim to talk about his documentary and what he found. So please join me back here later this week on Going Deeper with Tim Mahoney, and I'll see you then. Until then, God bless.